eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, everybody. Another edition here of the Auburn Undercover Podcast on the 24-7 Sports Network. My name is Nathan King. I am joined again today by our publisher, Ronnie Sanders, and we have another special guest on the show. Joining us here today, former Auburn defensive coordinator, coach all across the SEC, Clemson defensive coordinator, former Southern Miss Citadel head coach. He's got quite the extensive resume. Ellis Johnson joins us here today on the podcast. Uh, Coach Johnson, first of all, uh, how has the beginning of the season been treating you? How have you enjoyed getting to watch some football? And I guess how have things been going for you? It's been going pretty well. I've, I've enjoyed doing three uh, fairly short radio spots. One's out of Tuscaloosa, one's out, uh, two out of Columbia. And uh, it's been a lot of fun keeping up with it from that side. I've also got a, my youngest son's walk on at Clemson. So I've been going up to those home games. And uh, I'll have to confess, sitting in those stands, and college football games is not the most fun. That's when I start wishing I was back in the press box. I remember those days. <clears throat> I remember we were after we left Florida. I brought my my wife up to to her first Iron Bowl. And, you know, she'd been a part of big games. You know, Florida, and she went to Florida, and you know, she'd been Florida State and Florida, Florida, Georgia, and she'd been in Jordan Hare Stadium about five minutes, and she looked at me and she says. I won't tell you exactly what she says, but she's, <laughs> she's like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so, you know, it's a different, it's a different experience. But won't you talk it a little is. bit? I, I keep, well, I keep looking for the police escort when I'm in the traffic, but they don't come. <laughs> to start off, tell us about your, uh, about your time at Auburn. How was Auburn different than some of the other places? Well, I've, people ask you, you know, the common question you get from everybody, where was your favorite place you ever worked? And to be honest with you, as a family, uh, the two favorite places we ever lived were Starkville and Auburn. And Auburn was really a little bit better because of location. Uh, it was so much easier to get back home and see family and so forth. But it, we just absolutely loved it. And it's a, it's a wonderful town, as y'all as well uh, know, because it's just, you know, it used to be a little bedroom community and it still has that feel to it because there's just so many nice restaurants and everything. Uh, but it was a it was a good time to come. Obviously, went to the national championship game that very first year, and uh, and then the next year, I think you know, slipping a little bit and having that, that bad exit or whatever, 
really didn't put a bad taste in my mouth. I enjoyed both years and enjoyed my time there. And uh, as I said, it was one of uh, our most favorite spots in the family. You know, you and I had a lot of discussions when you were when you were at Auburn, and uh, I think we both were were beating the drums a little bit for for better facilities and that sort of thing. Um, clearly, Jordan Hare Stadium still is still behind, but um, I mean, Auburn just opened a ninety some odd million dollar football facility. Um, I think in our mind, it's probably ten years too late, but uh, but better late than never, I guess. Yeah, I I love the, the facility we had. It needed a lot of a lot of things cosmetically, I guess. Functionally, it was unbelievable. You had your offices, you had your uh, attached to the weight room. You walk right through the weight room. You're in the indoor facility. You walk out the door. You're on all your practice fields. But we were kind of boxed in. I thought we needed more practice space. Uh, the, the indoor facility was excellent. The, the building needed to be dressed up a little bit. We even, I remember Coach Gardner, who was on our staff with us back then, Rodney Gardner. And, of course, Rodney had been at Auburn about as long as anybody. And he always talked about adding a wing onto the end of the building. And when they started building it, and I was talking to you, I thought they were putting it over by that little pond and that barn over across the road over that way. But my daughter said it's just right down the road from the facility. But yes. it, it, I've, I have not seen it, but I have heard it's absolutely awesome. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a bad luck person, guys. I, I leave a place and they build a new facility. It happened to me at the Citadel. It happened to me at Clemson. It happened to me at, at Mississippi State. It happened to me at Auburn. Everywhere I go, they build a new facility as soon as I leave. But, uh, yeah, I've heard it's an absolutely fantastic. And, that, and you say that uh, Jordan Hare is a little behind. It may be some things, you know, for the fans that need to be done that I, I, of course, was never aware of. I think it's one of the best stadiums. Uh, in the country, the way it's bowled in and the, the uh, structure of it and all that, the design of it, I love it. I, I don't know what else it needs, but it would be probably from a fan standpoint or a fan's viewpoint. What's the, you know, and I, I, we've talked about this before, but I've talked to a bunch of coaches and asked them, you know, where's the loudest place you've ever played? Um, and most, most of the time it's LSU, Florida, Auburn, at least in the conference. What are your, what's your opinion? Well, all of those are right up there at the top. And believe it or not, I had one of our former quarterbacks at Alabama, Freddie Kitchens. You know, he did a, a analyst last year with South Carolina. And I went over one day to their camp. And uh, my son was participating in their camp. And he was talking about, and out of the blue, Freddie said, that, that stadium's the loudest stadium I ever played in. I said, you mean Williams Bryce? He said, yeah. I said, oh, man, I never thought about it. But it is loud, and I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's the design, the structure, or what it is, but the acoustics in that place, night games especially, you ask any player or coach across the SEC, and they'll tell you it might be the loudest stadium they play in. I think the loudest problem that I remember going in was LSU. And uh, I do remember one time we played Auburn, and I was at Alabama, and we had a, a tough loss. It was uh, the season I first came back. It would have been 90, it would have been 97, I guess. We played at Auburn, and we were having a terrible year. But we, we should have won the ball game. We turned the ball over right at the end to kick the field goal and beat us. But I remember Mike talking to the athletic director in the locker room after the game while we were getting dressed. And he said, you know, I wish our stadium was as loud as this one. And I never thought about it, but it was right. 
And, and the difference, guys, is the average age of the fans in the stadium at Alabama back then was probably 40-something years old uh, because you couldn't hardly get tickets. And I think the average age of the fans in the Auburn stadium when it was packed back in those days was probably 20-something. And it was just louder. And it really was a more uh, a difficult, more difficult place to play as a visiting team than our stadium was at that time. Let me ask you a question because, you know, you and I are a little bit older than Nathan, but um, what, what, and I know we're on an Auburn podcast, but, but um, what, what did Die do? What, what, what did, um, how did Die change Auburn? Because, you know, when I was growing up prior to 1983, Auburn had one SEC championship, one national championship. And you look at the success since 1983, I mean, it's been pretty phenomenal. If you can yeah. That's that's a great question because as much as I've followed Coach Dye and I've been on been on the other side of the field, three different colleges playing against him, but uh, it's obvious what he did for the place. But I never looked at it from that aspect. And uh, you're right. I mean, until he came in and changed the the whole mentality of it, I guess uh, the vision, uh, maybe what they thought they could be, and from then on they've been nationally ranked and competitive and playing for conference championships and up and down a little bit, obviously, like all places, but it, it really wasn't the same place. Ronnie, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, you know, I followed him. He, he actually, I played against, he was at East Carolina when I was playing in college at the Citadel. And he came in behind a guy, Sonny Randall, who was successful there too. But he eventually just took over the conference and then moved on to, to Wyoming. He won at Wyoming, but he wasn't there very long. And then came to Alton. But you're right, since the time he walked in there, it was like it kind of changed the attitude of what Auburn could be and how, how consistently they could be there. Uh, it was sort of like, you know, I thought Charlie Pell and Danny Ford did the same thing at Clemson. Mm-hmm. Uh, until they came in, Clemson had some history back in the days. That I think they played in a 37 Orange Bowl or Cotton Bowl, 37 Cotton Bowl, played in the Orange Bowl a couple of times. Uh, played a Gator Bowl. That's back before there were 100 bowls. And then they went through a period where they, you know, in the 60s and 70s, where they were just very mediocre. And Coach Pell and Coach Ford kind of got it turned to where they felt like they could play with people, you know, on a national level. You know, if you, if you look at Auburn, you know, I mean, you look at the seasons. I mean, Auburn really got screwed out of the national championship in 83. You know, lost, lost one game in 88 by one point. Um, and you had an undefeated 93 team. Uh, you had 2000, 2004, obviously, was, was you know, everything that happened there. But, I mean, you know, 2010, 2013. Um, and as you said, there have been a lot of ups and downs. But for me, during my lifetime, I know that um, uh, I've seen a lot of ups and downs, but I also noticed that, um, you know, die, die made a big difference. Um, die, die kind of changed everything uh, for you know, from when he was, he was the coach, the athletic director, expanding the stadium and building the athletic complex. Um, I, I'm not sure he gets – he gets a lot of credit. I'm not sure he gets quite enough. Yeah, and I, I guess he was instrumental too. And say we're not coming to Birmingham anymore to play that Alabama game. He said uh, we're not going to play our home game in Birmingham. Right. And I think Alabama obviously didn't have the same – they were a little bit more comfortable over there than Auburn because they played a lot of games over there each year. When I went to work at Alabama in 1990, we played our big games in Birmingham. Uh, <clears throat> Brian Denny held 50,000 people when I went to work there. Mm-hmm. 
but I think it took them a longer time. Coach Dye had a better vision. It took Alabama longer to understand you could be playing these games on your campus. And what it's done to both places is obvious. I mean, it took 10, 15 years for the true effects to always come about. But unbelievable. Not only the enlargement of the stadium, but just all the things that it's helped in that town. And uh, same thing at Auburn. So there were a lot of things he did that have, have nothing to do with X's and O's or blocking and tackling that really, uh, I think, like you said, put Auburn on a different level. And I never thought about it in that light. I always looked at it more as just the football side of it. Talk about the Iron Bowl a little bit and the Georgia game. I mean, how, how do those rivalries compare to some of the others you've been a part of? You've been a bunch. You've been a part of a bunch of them. Yeah, I think the one of the things that this probably not that important, but one of the first things that jumps out. I've been involved in Mississippi State, Ole Miss. Been involved in South Carolina, Clemson. Uh, been in some other big rivals that weren't maybe your chief rival. You know, Alabama, Tennessee uh, was huge when we were there. Uh, but the Alabama-Auburn rivalry, I've, I've never seen a fight. Now, y'all may have. I've never seen a fight. It's some of the best football, you know, played in America. But you don't have a bunch of cheap shot and then all this crap. And it seemed like there was a mutual respect. Some of that may have been lost a little bit. But in all the other rivals I've coached in, at some point in time, the two schools had a nasty incident or more on the field. And I never saw that with Alabama-Auburn. But Auburn, I think, is it's one of the best places in America to coach and one of the hardest. You can't put a a school geographically in a better recruiting demographic location-wise, but you can't put any more – people around it that are hard to beat in recruiting than Auburn has. I mean, you go west, you run into LSU, you run into Old Miss State, who, who are not going to let their hometown guys get out of there if they can help. You go north, you got Tuscaloosa. You go east, you got Georgia. And you go down to Panhandle, you got Florida State, and even farther down, you got Florida. I mean, it is really, really hard. And I look back on some of the best Auburn teams to me. They always had South Georgia kids, and they always had some Florida kids. And just, you know, there's not enough Alabama players because of population, uh, kids in the state of Alabama, to build a national championship. You have to get them somewhere else. And it is a tough, tough job because of where you're located. Ellis, you mentioned that the Alabama-Auburn rivalry is a lot of respect, you feel like, from, from you know somebody who coached at both locations. I think a lot of people, you know, realize that, Maybe it's the same student demographic. They just some decide to go to Alabama, some decide to go to Auburn. That's that's the case as well for Georgia. But Hugh Freeze said this week that uh, he doesn't necessarily know if there's a bunch of hatred in the Auburn-Georgia rivalry. Um, he said he hasn't necessarily felt that. How much do you think he's going to feel that after the after the first game on Saturday? Well, well, I don't, you know, I don't know about the fan bases, but it, it, that was a huge game, and it's always it's moved up earlier now. I think on the schedule, it was always almost right in front of the Alabama game. Uh, so it was very hard to play those two back to back and have, you know, your players focused and uh, up for both games. You know, it's almost draining to play Georgia. And then you got to turn around and you got to play Alabama. It's even worse. So, I, you know, I don't know what he'll find. I, I'll, I'll say this the only place I've ever been been cussed by and called by my first name going up to the press box was in Georgia. <laughs> you, know, you, 
you have these fans, hey, we're going to kick y'all's, you know what, today. You better have them ready, coach. Da, 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 da. I was only way up in the press box one time to Georgia. I was in Carolina at the time. I think we'd beat them the year before. And I heard some guy that called me by my first name said, hey, Ellis, we're coming after your ass today. <laughs> <laughs> I sped up a little bit, got to the press box a little quicker. I thought, this guy knows my first name. I don't think I want to stop and talk to him. <laughs> Did you ever get barked at? No. <laughs> no. I did. I, and I, you know, I tell you what, some of the nastiest fans are South Carolina. But when I came to South Carolina, I was usually on the Clemson bus. Uh, when I was coaching here, I, you know, I never noticed any of it. Uh, I think some of the classiest fans are Alabama and Auburn fans. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure there are incidences. Coach Stallings claims that somebody mooned the bus when we got beat down there. In uh, 93, <laughs> but uh, a lot of things happen, I guess, when you're the chief rival. But the fans at both Alabama and Auburn, I don't hear a lot of talk about them doing stuff, throwing things on players or throwing stuff on coaches or, you know, messing buses when they were coming in and this kind of thing. Uh, but now LSU, Georgia, South Carolina, it gets, it can get a little salty. Oh, Miss, my gosh, we were playing that one time and the cameraman got hit in the leg with a liquor bottle that was well, aimed at a player. We were playing over there when when uh, when I was a student at Auburn and, I'm, and Terry was there. Uh, Terry Bowden was the head coach and we were along the sidelines and it was an 11 o'clock kick and we started getting pelted with whiskey bottles. And so we had to tell yeah. all the players to put their helmets on and move up from the stands and get as close to the sidelines <laughs> as they could get. Was one of those you, you've seen the TV things? It changed a little bit now, but I saw one the other day at Clemson. They they're on a little tractor, and they'll turn. You know, with the cameraman can actually turn the whole thing. It was one of those guys who's down in the corner near the end zone, and we scored. I think late in the game, and and they started throwing things, and the cameraman got hit, and and it was serious injury. Talk about um, I know it's Georgia week, but. Uh, uh, Talk about kick six. Um, I know you had a lot to do with that, Chris Davis. Tell us about that story. Well, it, it's kind of, when you look back on it, the way it all happened seemed like, you know, just split second or whatever. But because of the, the contesting of the time on the clock, we had a lot of talk time on the phone. You know, we were thinking about this and thinking about that. Uh, when it first began, Gus felt like they would take a, a shot at the field goal. And he helped, he felt like they had a kicker that could kick one that far. He wasn't their regular kicker. I mean, they had another guy kick the extra points and shorter field goals. Maybe it was more consistent. And I thought, Coach, aren't they going to throw a Hail Mary? And I think most everybody in the stadium thought they would take a shot and you know, throw it up in the end zone. But, so we had plenty of talk time. I just said, well, if they're going to try to kick a field goal from there, we need to try to return it because at least we got a shot. And if they make it, they make it. And if they don't, we can probably run it back. So we, we talked it up on the sideline. We had never worked on that play in practice and, and just never thought about that situation, I guess. And so we just did it over the phones. Rodney Garner was responsible for the PAT field goal block team, and we, we just coached him up. When they came back out and they put the kicker on the field and Gus iced him, so we had a little more time, you know, with the timeout. And during that timeout, you know, Chris was going to be the best guy coming off the edge to block it. But we, we realized that we better put him back then to return it because, 
you know, the, the other guy's not going to get the ball past 20 yard line, even if they do mess. So we got, uh, Gus got Chris, you know, switched to the safety position, which backed out down on the end zone. So we just took the guy out of the scheme that was responsible for fakes and put him back in, to return it. And that just executed our regular field goal and then just told him, you know, peel around toward our bench and don't block below the waist and we'll see what will happen. So it was almost like a fairy tale. It, it looked like something you worked on 15 minutes every day in practice. And I look back on it, and some of the players, I, I like to run it back and forth, and, and there's about three blocks on there that are unbelievably uh, they're smart, the position, the technique, and everything else. Kids just did it like they just perfect. And, and again, you look at it and think, they must work on that every Friday. And we had never done it before, you know, and uh, it just worked. And then the funny thing about it, Ron, everybody starts working on that for the next 10 years. I mean, as you see, everybody trying to risk those things back. It'll happen again someday. But it won't happen like that. That reminds me you of know, the way you tell that story. reminds me a little bit of, um, obviously, Kick 6 was much bigger. But, you know, the 86 uh, reverse to victory, Lawyer Tillman's out there and if I remember correctly, he's on the sideline over there. You can watch it on YouTube. He's over there trying to call timeout. He'd never run the play. And, you know, he snapped the ball, and, and uh, you know, he scores right at the end of the game. Auburn wins on the you know, reverse to victory. Um, yeah. But he, he never run that play either. So that's uh, amazing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Guys, that's amazing. Yeah, just the way things unfold sometimes. And, and what was even more so, you know, we're kind of, we were kind of playing with house money on that one because we're going to overtime if nothing happens. The Georgia thing the week before was a crazy one. I mean, we're done. And that, that tip pass, you know, it, it, uh, he took the house. I mean, it's just unbelievable. How did, that, how did that happen? I mean, I know that, you know, Auburn was way up and then Georgia came back and, um, you know, then Ricardo Lewis. But, yeah, I well, uh, I'm, I'm in the world's worst about remembering details in games. I, I mean, when I work with Coach Spurrier, we talk about some games that we have played each other. And he could remember something happening in the second quarter on the third down on the 22-yard line. And, I mean, it just – there was a muff punt in the game. We played them one time when I was at Alabama. I thought it happened in the fourth quarter. It happened in the second quarter. But on that, on that particular game, it was a really good football game. And I thought they had a heck of a team. I, I, uh, I think uh, Aaron Murray is one of the most underrated quarterbacks ever play in the SEC. But, uh, you know, it's back and forth. And then we did a fantastic job, you know, of coming back. On that play, though, what the, the scheme was, we had a, a, a post and we had an under route coming in around 15, 20 yards across. He was wide open. And they covered the deep route. And that's where, you know, I think uh, – uh, Nick just cut it loose and he threw a good ball, but it was double covered. And it was just by luck, I guess they bang into each other and tip that ball up in the air. And Ricardo made a tremendous play on the ball just to be able to focus on it and not, you know, not take his eyes off of it and make the catch. So it was kind of like the gods were on our side on that one. Uh, and then and really the receiver that he should have thrown to was the underneath guy. And he, he would have taken it. Uh, we might have scored on that drive had he caught that ball because we would have been down on the 20-something yard line. And if you remember, they got a chance to come back up the field. We finally got him stopped on about the 25-yard line. When you look at this year's 
Auburn defense. And obviously, they they had a loss last week, but the defense continued to play really well. They've got new coaches all over the field. It's a first year DC, a guy who's been doing it a long time, and Ron Roberts. But for you, whenever you were you know under a new staff and the first year in a system, how how difficult is it to execute so well early in the season, and and how impressive is it to look at somebody? to look at a coordinator in his unit that is executing at a high level with so many new players and so many new faces early in the year. It is. And, and not just there. Uh, I mean, that's a new staff, but guys with this portal, I, you know, everybody's playing with five or six guys in their lineup. Now they weren't even there. Some of them weren't there in the spring and they may be older players and that makes it a little, a little easier, I guess. But uh, I've been impressed how well it looked on defense. It's kind of like they've, changed over the last two, three years uh, in, the, in their complexions. And, I mean, it's awesome defense out there on the West Coast against Cal. And I, I have not been able to watch them in total you know, on games because I have to watch so many different games. And then I also go up to see my son. So I can't say that I've sat there and watched him a lot. But just watching portions of games and then seeing replays on some big plays and stuff like that, they're playing tremendous defense. I hope they got a bunch of young players on that group and they'll have them for another year or two. Uh, he will get the offense going. Apparently the quarterbacks are not uh, consistent and, and it's hurting him a lot. But he'll get that part going. I mean, that's kind of what he keeps his hands on and uh, they'll get better and better. But I think I think it's been a good year for him so far. And although the game the other day score-wise wasn't, wasn't real close, uh, they're, they're in every ball game because of their defense when you look at you mentioned the quarterbacks um against texas a&m you know they've got so much talent on their defensive line that kind of blew up the whole game that kind of that kind of ended up being the most important part of the game georgia this weekend they've kind of it's the same thing they've got great players on their defensive line from a defensive coach's perspective you have obviously coached a bunch of great d linemen um throughout your career you know a guy like jadavian Clowney, i'm sure was quite the the game wrecker at, at South Carolina. How much are you able to dictate a game when it's clear from the first quarter that you're able to kind of overwhelm the offensive line? How much easier does that make it on the rest of your defensive game plan when you've got that going? Yeah, that that that's hard not to be successful when you're dominating in the box. Uh, and it's, it's very far, a few games in the SEC you can do that because everybody's got good players. But there are a couple of teams, and I, I didn't realize Texas A&M was that good up front. Uh, Georgia will be. I don't think Georgia's as good as they've been the last two years, though. Uh, but I've watched the game. I remember the, the national championship game that Clemson beat Alabama. Uh, they didn't have 20-something yards rushing the first half, and they went in almost by 20 points. They hit two long passes early in the game, and they picked a pass on Alabama and took it to the house. And, you know, they're blowing them out. And I'm looking at the stats and I'm thinking, how are they moving the ball? I just want all these points. So there are other ways to get there. But when you're dominating up front, it, as a, I mean, from the other side, the offense coaches, I mean, you, you don't know what to call. You know, it's not like you getting out executed or they happen to get the right blitz on you at the right time. You can't come in and make a halftime adjustment when everybody across the front is getting whipped. And so it makes it very difficult for the offense. For the defense, it's a very comfortable situation. I mean, you do things when you want to do them instead of having to bring linebackers and things like that to stop, stop the run or get pressure. You, you know, you pretty much do it when you want to do it. And it makes it a whole lot easier to call a game, sure. 
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's, let's jump around the conference a little bit. Um, what do you think about Jimbo and Petrino? How's that going to work out after? I think, I think overall that's been a very positive situation. And I've had to coach against both of them. And, and I, you know, Jimbo's, Jimbo was hard to defense just as much as Bobby was. And there was a similarity in them. I don't know that they at all alike. If, if I said this to them, they might laugh in my face and say, this stuff's not even anything like mine. There was one aspect of it I felt like was they throw more seven-step or deep play-action pocket uh, concepts, and it's hard to get pressure on the quarterback. And if you give Petrino time for his quarterback to get through his progressions, his route concepts, there will be somebody open. No matter what you're running, uh, you know there's a there's an answer for the blitz. There's an answer for a two deep zone. There's an answer for a three deep zone. You know there's an answer for everything you could be running that time. So disguise is important because it makes the quarterback have to make a decision after the ball's in his hands, maybe. But it doesn't matter if you catch him in something they didn't know you were going to run it because if the quarterback has time and he throws it to the right person, there's an answer for whatever you're in. And I've had days where it was just impossible to get him off the field. And and he'll run the football on third and six or seven. So you get caught in some defenses, you're not prepared for that. And and they'll throw the ball on first down quite a bit. So it's it very, very difficult. The, the similar aspect that I found with Jimbo was the deep pocket, uh, the deeper drops with the quarterback in the pocket. And the same thing happens if you can't get pressure and, and get to them on time. And it's harder when they drop that deep. And it's very difficult. Uh, a lot of these people now in these RPOs, and I think it's a great concept, but they're trying to do it too much. And as a result, these quarterbacks are throwing the football. They're only five or six yards off the line of scrimmage. And any kind of push up in the pocket is affecting these kids unless they're about six five. So, I, you know, I think Clemson's having a problem with that right now. And they're not throwing enough passes where the quarterback's on a deeper drop and he's getting pushed in his face and he's making some bad decisions. How do you see Texas and Oklahoma fitting in around the uh, next year? I, I would have said, you know, last two or three years, I would have said they're going to have a couple of times, a couple of years, so they're going to figure out, you know, what the SEC is all about, recruiting-wise and the, the uh, physicality of it. But now you look at it, and it looks like both teams right now have kind of found their legs. And Texas has the win over Alabama to prove it. And, uh, you know, they, they, they physically played with them. They skill-wise matched up with them. 
and they beat them. And and so they're they're ready to play in that conference, as far as I can tell. They got got one of the best quarterbacks in America, and they got the best one signed last year sitting on the bench. Uh, uh, Oklahoma, I'm not sure is quite as ready, uh, but this year they haven't really played tough teams yet. But this year they look like they're a whole lot better than they were last year. Definitely putting up more points. And uh, of course, Brent, I think does a great job defensively. He'll have some some influence on that defense. So I, my really my prediction right now is when they come in next year, uh, they'll be right there in the middle of it. I think both of them will. What's the difference in playing in the SEC and playing in some of these other conferences, just week to week? To me, it used to be the speed, and I think a lot of that's balanced out now uh, with some other conferences. I, I'm, I'm sure the portal's probably having an effect on that too. <clears throat> probably uh, players that used to be willing to wait two years, they're not doing it anymore. They're going somewhere else to play. Uh, but I think the biggest thing, coaching in that league and coaching in other leagues, sometimes we had just as much talent in our other other programs I coached in. But when you run through that SEC gauntlet, about that sixth or seventh week, if you don't have an open date or you don't have some other a, a 1AA team on your schedule or something where you can take some kids off the field, it's very hard to make it through an SEC schedule and still be, you know, the same football team seven, eight, nine weeks down the down the thing. It's just physically draining on these kids. It was always, you know, we'd always marvel. We'd have a kid out three weeks with an injury, maybe his ankle or something, come back, and they'd be the fastest ones out there running around, moving around the practice field uh, because they were fresh. And uh, it just takes a lot out of you. Everybody talks about, well, they talk about the bowl matchups, who wins those. That doesn't tell you how good a conference is. If your conference goes six and one or it goes two and five, you, you're not playing a season when you play a bowl game. And you've got three or four weeks to get ready. I, I just think it's the physicality of it, the wear and tear myself. Nathan? Yeah, you know, obviously it's 10 years since that, since that 2013 <clears throat> run you guys had um it's obviously it's a very different team Auburn's got right now but you guys had that early season loss on the road at LSU I know a bunch of players and a bunch of coaches from that team have talked about maybe that was a that was sort of a good thing in the long run Auburn gets an early loss here at Texas A&M again I'm not saying they're about to they're about to run the table and, and beat number one Georgia but um you know when it's early in the year and you and it with a first year staff new coaches new players everybody and you get to experience that first loss together what are some of the keys that you were looking for in your players and and what's kind of the most important thing to bounce back after that and uh and you know make the best of it instead of letting it get you down well yeah, the first thing you're looking for is when they come back in the building whether it's sunday or monday how you do it and you can kind of read their whole attitude you know if they come back and they look like they've got give up in their body or if they come back and it's a bunch of complaining or finger pointing then you're in trouble a long year and you're going to have to you know work your way through it figure out who to get rid of and who to keep and whatever else you can do when they come back in with the right attitude you know they, they want to know what they did wrong they want to get out there and fix it as soon as they can and get better that whether you win anymore or not you know you know at least you're on the right page you got the right guys uh you, you can't guarantee you got to have talent you know if you're going to win but uh, we did some things, coaches. I, I one thing jumped right out in my mind. Uh, you know, they had a real physical running game, and 
I, I remember we put in a short yardage scheme, uh, extra lineman to, to try to be, they would actually start running that stuff to kill the clock or just, just sometimes control the ball and take control of the game for a while. And, and we didn't, we didn't execute it. Go back and look at it. And it was bad coaching because you shouldn't, you put something in, you practice it for two days and then it doesn't look, it doesn't work well because they do something scheme wise you didn't work on. And it just was, you know, bad coaching. And that's the kind of thing you learn something about that yourself too, your staff and yourself and everything else. So I, I was surprised that we were able to get put together, you know, what a 12 game run after that or 10 and 11. I don't know what that game is, what third or fourth game. Third, I think. But uh, we beat Washington State that opening game, and we came in the locker room as coaches, and we were saying that might be a bowl game right there. I mean, we felt like we were a six-win team. That's that's what we were trying to make sure that we got those kids to a bowl game. Because if you remember the year before, I think they won three or something, and they didn't even get to go to a bowl. Mm-hmm. So we were we were kind of psychiatrists as well as coaches that year. But uh, we were not nearly as good a team as Florida State when we got to California, but we played better than they did that night. And it's a shame that we couldn't win that one. Uh, the kicking game, you know, bit us in the, in the end. And, well, we'd probably probably pulled it off. You know, you talking about that reminds me of when we got to LSU in 2000. I remember Nick saying, you know, we had really good players. They were just effed up in the head. <laughs> you know, and, and, yep. and you know, Donato had recruited really good players, but we got down there and they were just kind of, you know, they were, they were beat down a little bit and um, – you know, it was it was a it was a tough deal when we got in there, and um, you know, you were talking about a while ago when you when you leave. I mean, when, when I leave, they win championships. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably had something to do with it, though, uh, building it up or whatever. But you know, it, it, I compare that. We came in, and those guys had not won, and they, we had some guys that were, you know, they were kind of like they were finger pointers. You know, for somebody else's fault, it wasn't my fault. You had a little bit of that. That's okay to a point. I mean, you know, competitive kids are going to be that way sometimes. You can break that. But, you know, when I came in Southern Miss, Ron, you'd been there a few years earlier. But Larry and them had won 11 games, I think, that year. But, you know, we talked about it. He told me, he said, now, you lose critical players on offense. And defense, you only got like two coming back that are really the ones who won ball games for us. Mm-hmm. And so we, he was very – up front about personnel and all that kind of thing. You couldn't tell those kids anything. I mean, they, they just won 11 ball games and whatever you did, it wasn't the same way they did it. They were, they, you know, they rejected it. Didn't have any leaders. You didn't have any guys that could have taken hold of it and, and gotten everybody's attitude straight. And of course, they had bad leadership at the top too. But uh, it, it's, it's more difficult when you come into a situation where guys have been successful and they don't want to change. And, and then it was that, that situation. Auburn, the vast majority of those players on that team were looking for some help. You know, they were tired of losing, and they wanted something to change. And, you know, fortunately, we were able to do it faster than we probably should have. Well, it was, it's, you know, like you say, if, if they've been winning, it's, it's a lot harder. Um, you know, we got into Florida, and, you know, they went to the Orange Bowl the year before we got there. And when Spurrier walked out the door, pretty much everybody else did too. Uh, you know, we got in there, and I think their their number five receiver was Taylor Jacobs. Uh, he was our number one receiver, and everybody else went to the NFL draft. You know, and Spurrier made the comment that 
you know, I left the cupboard a little bit bare. Um, it was more than a little bit bare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what do you, um, talk a little bit about, uh, failed former Auburn coach, Brian Harson, uh, and that, that, that fit and, and, um, why it didn't work. It's, it's hard for me to speculate not being in it. You know, my daughter was over there, but she's a, she's a fan of football because she's grown up around it, but she's not knowledgeable and she doesn't care to be knowledgeable. So she, she doesn't really get into it that much from that aspect. Uh, you know, I, I, I put it, I put it 50, 50 on him and the, and, and the place. I mean, I, I can't believe the amount of distractions and, and obstructions and everything else that he had to deal with in his own camp. If you can't, it's hard enough to win an SEC game when everybody on the campus is is right in line and pulling the rope. When you don't have that, it's almost impossible to overcome. Now, that being said, and, and again, I'm not a good source because all I would do is hear whatever I read, or whatever somebody through the coaching grapevine or somebody would say something. So, I, you know, if some of the things that were going on had any bit of truth, then it was a little bit of suicide, too. I mean, you can't. You can't have the way you the, – the things I was getting was the way players were being handled or talked to or coached or whatever, that it was a lot of negativity and, and criticism and so forth. And it's not for so long, you know, you can, you can call a dog a dog and it won't have fleas. So I think it was probably a little bit of both ways. And it's a shame, you know, because – Again, if you're not all pulling the rope in the same direction, you're not going to win that conference. You're not going to win anywhere very consistently, but you ain't got a chance in the SEC. Well, and I think that, you know, it, certainly Auburn was not aligned. Uh, and I think one thing now is Auburn's probably more aligned than it's been since the 80s with Die. Um, I think that's that's probably a good thing for Auburn. But um, Harson, uh, from the day he came in, didn't really uh, try to mesh into the Auburn community. Um Right. It was his way or the highway and didn't really uh, embrace Auburn at all. Uh, didn't really work at recruiting and didn't really do a lot of things. <laughs> um, and as you know, if you're not recruiting in the, in the SEC, you're not going to have much, much success. Yeah. It's a different, uh, it, it's, it's important everywhere, but I, I really think uh, on the power five level, recruiting is more important than anything else you do. I don't care what my brilliant schemes are or anything else. You, you just have to get players on that level. You know, if you don't have about 12 NFL players somewhere in your lineup every year, you're going to have a hard time winning. Now, they can't be selfish and they can't be outlaws or thugs, but you've got to have talented kids in the SEC. I mean, it's, it's no different than the NFL. One more for me, um, Ellis. I think kind of early in the season here, you're seeing Auburn's coaches – uh, react to what they're seeing on the field because I think and Hugh Freeze has kind of tried to get this across to the fan base a few times and I wanted to get your your take on it I don't think they knew exactly what they would have in terms of their players because like you said there's so many transfers I don't think they knew what they would have until the guys were on the field like they watched them practice every day but once the bullets started flying particularly on offense this doesn't relate as much to the defense because I think they've executed really well but how much is that the case how much is it you got to get a few games in. Maybe you have to get an SEC game in before you really start understanding this is what we have and this is what we don't have. I think in today's portal football, I think it's more important than ever. 
And it just, it's really amazed me how well some of these teams are executing, how well they're playing. And you look at how many transfers they have uh, mixing their lineups. Uh, you know, I, I was talking with uh, Dabo the other day when I, I went up to see my son and was talking to him. And, you know, he, he takes an approach that he tries to use the tries not to use the portal except just for something like, you know, he brought in the Tyson kid to the quarterback room because he just needed a reliable backup in that room. Uh, just they didn't have any more left. And then got another walk on here from Columbia who's doing a good job. But anyhow, he, he said, first thing I do is it sends a message to my recruits that the next year we're going to be working player development with you. We're not going to be out in the portal trying to find somebody to play in front of you. And, it, and it, he sells that. And then he wants them to stay and graduate. And then they've had a lot of kids now that could have gone to the NFL and they stayed an extra year. And he feels like it's because of that philosophy he's taking that he's building it with, with high school players predominantly and not portals. Now, is it the right way? I hope it is because I believe in that more than I believe in all this transferring. But as long as the rules stay the way they are, all this mass transferring and so forth, I don't know how you stay out of that out of that arena completely and not end up shorthanded a couple of years. Uh, and I, I, I think the job that, that uh, Dion's done out of Colorado is phenomenal. And the most important, uh, impressive thing to me is not uh, his kid or whatever else. They look like they're playing well together, both execution, and they don't, you don't see a whole bunch of crap over on the bench and all that. You don't hear about it coming out of that camp. And to take all the players he brought in there that never played together before and, and have that kind of – I mean, they got a good-looking football team. And they got out-talented the other day, got a wake-up call. And, and that goes back to your question. Uh, until you play really top competition with those guys you haven't had but three months, you don't know. You probably don't know whether they're good enough or you're deep enough or, you know, can you handle this, can you handle that. So they'll get better. As long as they don't have bad luck with injuries, they'll get better and better. Uh, but they probably did need that measuring stick last week. I predicted they were going to go out there and upset Texas a and So, y'all probably don't need to have me on here anymore. <laughs> but I really I thought the way they played out of Cal, they just found a way to win. And I thought they might could do it against Texas A&M, too. But it's just too much talent difference out there in some key situations. But I, I think – not just Auburn, and I think they've done a good job, but most every program you look across the board and they got five or six key players or more that came out of the portal and they're playing well and they're all playing and executing together well. And it seemed to be, you know, what, what goes on in the locker rooms, we don't always know. But if they got real bad problems in the locker room, it'll show up on the field. Let me ask you one question. I know, we, you know, we probably need to wrap up. We've been going a little while, but um, you mentioned Dion. Um, you know, I saw an interview with him last week. It was on 60 Minutes, and he made the comment that, and I, I really want to get your, you know, because you talked about the transfer portal, and you've been doing this a long time. Um, he said, you know, these kids are coming here for me. Not, I, I'm recruiting these kids here for me. They're coming for me, not the school, not for the football pro. They're coming for me. How's that? I, I mean, for me, when you're out recruiting, um, you know, at a place like LSU or Auburn or Alabama or Florida, Clemson, and tell me if I'm wrong, but at some point you're selling the school, you're selling the place. Um, 
you know, you're not selling a personality. Um, but what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, I agree. I, uh, you know, kind of goes back to what I said, Dabo, he, he's staying on that philosophy because it is important to him. He, he wants them to graduate. He doesn't want to see them in six years, uh, you know, injured in the NFL and out selling drugs somewhere. He wants them to have a meaningful degree. He wants them to stay there and play and, and develop players. Uh, and, and that is kind of the antithesis of what you're talking about with, with Dion. I'm not faulting Dion. He didn't make the rules. He's just using the rules the way they get. It's just like somebody, you know, hiring a good lawyer not to pay taxes. As long as you don't break the law, he didn't make the law. He's just trying to do the thing he can to uh, get the best out of it he can. Uh, I didn't hear that statement. I don't like it. But if you watch 60 Minutes, Ronnie, you know he might have said that. He might have been talking about the, the – uh, the trainer of somebody in 60 minutes edited it out and put it back in a little later or something, but they're coming for me. They're coming for me. They might've been talking about some band member. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't like that, you know, cause if you're coming for Dion, make sure you understand he might not be there in two years. So, you know, I, and again, I don't trust 60 minutes. I, I wouldn't cut that on my TV. I thought I talked to you better than that, but, uh, but I yeah, I don't. I don't like that. I know what you're saying. Though. I don't like that part of it. Uh, and, and you know, I've really complimented him. I think he's done a hell of a job molding that team with all these new players. I thought the thing was going to be was a, a talented clown show, and it doesn't look like that at all. I mean, they they executed well as any college team in America. Uh, so I, I think he's a heck of a football coach from what I see on the field. I don't like all the other stuff because I don't think it helps college football. My biggest problem with all this portal and and uh, NIL stuff is it, it's going to kill uh, the, the lower levels of football. And I don't know how, how far down it's going to go, but I played the second level and I've coached on the second level. And it's really important to me that they don't do something that just completely deteriorates that. I think it's crazy some of the stuff that's going on with the combination of the NIL and the portal. And, and they got to get control of it if it's possible, or it's it's going to be a cancer to each college football. Well, now we'll wrap up with that. I, uh, you know, and I, that kind of leads into my last question: um, expansion, uh, which is another issue with uh, with college football right now. I mean, Big Ten's on the West Coast. Uh, at least the SEC has uh, at least all the states uh, touch each other. You know, I mean, it still yeah. kind of looks like a at least in some in some form or fashion, the SEC, um, the Big Ten's going to, uh, you know, uh, you got four teams on the West Coast now, uh, and I guess maybe that's a little bit different because, you know, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 already, I mean, they they played for years in the Rose Bowl and all that stuff. But, I mean, how do you see expansion changing college football? I, I just don't think you can tell. I, I don't think anybody knows. I don't think some of the players involved, not player players, but I'm talking about some of the key folks involved in this stuff absolutely know either. Uh, I, I agree with you. The geographical footprint to me has always been somewhat important. That's where rivalries come from. Uh, it was all started, as you well know, because schools wanted to play similar schools in philosophy. You know, the Ivies play the Ivies and state universities play the state universities. And, you know, the Big Ten, the ACC always claimed they had better academics. Probably wasn't, but uh, they had more emphasis on it in some, some ways. But when you separate like that across the country, 
the bottom line, most of these conference commissioners now, they get up in the morning. They're not working for that conference. They're working for Bob Iger or somebody. They're working for the TV people. Uh, if they want to know what their job is, what's going, you know, what they're going to be responsible for the next year, they need to call the TV execs because they're going to be the ones going to tell them. And as long as they bow down to this almighty dollar and they're willing to, you know, jump in line to get some more of that money, which I guess you got to to survive in this, in this climate, that's who they're working for now. And if you think those TV people give a rats about sports, they don't give about sports. They care about TV sets being cut on. And obviously sports is the best entertainment going right now. So they're all trying to get sports on their TV station so they can sell ads. They don't care about the Auburn-Georgia rivalry. And they don't care about footprints. They don't care about academics. And the people who are selling out to them, they're giving lip service to it too. I mean, just, you know, I just don't see how it ends well. I really don't. I, I think for the 50, 60 schools right now that are in the middle of it, they're getting a lot of beneficial things happening right now for their programs. And they're going to build a new facility and they're going to recruit better players. They're going to recruit further out. They're going to do this and going to do that. But I, I think in three or four years, it's going to be some kind of other realignment Either somebody in TV is going to go bankrupt or somebody in TV is going to come up with another billion dollars and they're going to all run over there and say, what do y'all want us to do? We need that money. I, I just think it is money's important. You got to have money. But right now they're all chasing money and they're not considering anything else. They're going to lose a lot of their fan base. They're going to all start cutting on TVs and we'll quit going to the stadium because they don't want to, they don't want to see UCLA play, you know, Saturday. They don't care about UCLA playing over here in the Big Ten or whatever. I, ACC. I mean, really, they're going to pick up two teams from California and and the Texas team? Maybe Texas isn't that bad. But I just think they've all learned, uh, learned to regret it somewhere down the line. I, I can't, I'm, a lot of smarter people are figuring it out than me, but I just don't see a good ending. Well, and I, you know, I, I grew up and, and you did too, and watching these traditional rivalries. I miss watching Oklahoma and Nebraska in games like that. And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the SEC ends up going with, with scheduling um, because there are going to be a lot of Alabama, Tennessee fans that are pretty upset and a lot of Auburn, Georgia fans, uh, things like right. that. If, if those, if those teams aren't playing each other um, and the SEC is not just, you know, Auburn, Alabama and, and uh, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, it's, you know, Auburn, Georgia's, longest rivalry in the in the deep south i mean those things alabama tennessee third saturday in october those things have meaning to fans uh if those rivalries yep. go away i think it takes away a lot from the conference yeah i think i think it's gonna hurt the fannies in the seats I, I mean maybe i'm wrong but i think you're gonna see people fewer people going to the, to the games in person and they are gonna just watch it on tv and it'll be some pretty good entertainment but i think when they destroy these natural rivalries going to hurt the attendance well i think that's a part of the reason you're seeing uh, and also it's it's revenue it's it's a way to drive revenue but uh, a lot of a lot of uh, schools are uh, somewhat reducing the size of their stadiums and putting in luxury boxes things like that um, yep. and it's like you say i mean it's it's generate revenue um and not as many people are coming to the games that's it and it just keeps moving that way I've got a ride into the Clemson games the other day. I ride with a guy because we're getting real close to the stadium. 
and then I ride home with my son. And the parking place, he's in a parking condominium group that's private owned by the block off the stadium. And the parking place costs forty thousand dollars. <laughs> wow. And that's his forever. But I don't know what you use it for except for five weeks of the year. It's a lot of money. Forty grand. Now I don't you know, who's gonna keep that? I just think they're catering to a certain group and eventually they're gonna lose a lot of the fans and stands. Well, Ellis, we appreciate you being with us. It's been great. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I, anytime. I, I've got a lot of free time. Sometimes there's con, little conflicts with radio shows and stuff like that. So enjoy doing it. We look forward to having you on again. Okay, man. Appreciate it. Hello everyone, it's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search... The rest is football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.